you're a commodity in a sense. And you are special as a practitioner. But to think about what next, to ask yourself, imagine yourself already as successful as you want to be. And then what? Do you expand? Are you going to create a huge practice? Or are you going to do it for a certain number of years and then hand it off? Give yourself a sense of holding the whole thing from start to finish and get a sense of what do you want your life to look and feel like. I'm Michael Matz, and this is Geological. There's a lot you don't learn in school. It can't be learned in school because it's learned in your experience. The kind of risks that are essential for you to take, the failures required to hone your perception and develop the capacity to quiet the barking dogs of your insecurity, the patients that will be your most troublesome teachers, and the hubris, ignorance, and guardrails of identity that keep you from fully inhabiting the enterprise of sitting with others who are seeking guidance and help. The clear-eyed view of who you think you are comes not from school, but from the experience of practicing long enough to know when you're out of your depth. And that is when what is unteachable in school has an opportunity to have its way with you. It's in the deep of a sleepless night when you start to come to your senses. It's in the being utterly lost in the presence of your patients when you've lost the scent of what used to be a familiar trail. Those moments of shaky uncertainty when everything you know is getting in the way of what you need to learn. You don't get this in school. You get this after the facade of false confidence begins to crumble and you no longer can abide the taste of your lies. It takes time to surrender our ideas of perfection and allow the world to return to being magically malleable, maturing into a sense of being that recognizes the world is not safe, but can be lived into more fully, knowing that truth. It takes time to burn away our entitlement. You might be well past middle age before the effective tantrums of your childhood finally burn themselves out. The stances you hold toward money, power, and authority will all be called into question, and it's vital to attend to the shadow hatreds and fears, lest we lay those on our patients in the name of healing. There's a lot you didn't learn in school because it can't be learned in school. If you're lucky, you've had some teachers who poked some holes into your sense of inflation, who didn't praise you for habits that firm up your delusion. What they don't tell you is that they're setting you off to sea in a leaky boat, one that will need rebuilding along the way. What they don't teach you in school is how to actually make a living and a life. School can help you shape your vessel, but you're the one that has to build and light the fire of the kiln that burns in your strength. Schools don't advertise the burden you'll willingly shoulder in the sacred space of clinic. They focus on the light, but without a friendly relationship with the dark, you'll not get far. You can count on your experience for that. And so you need to be on speaking terms with your disgust, dissent, and disturbance in such a way that you can use them as a kind of fuel for change without destroying relationships or hardening your heart. When you've lost sight of the vision 
that started you off. When your clinical work needs bracing up with a comfortable story. In the times of financial uproar, self-blame, and an active search for a scapegoat to appease your discomfort, that's when you'll know you're making some progress. There comes a time of reckoning. It's not something that can be taught, but it is something that can be learned. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on diet as medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you are helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. 
you can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up in available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. The practice of medicine is intimately connected with transition and change. There's no way to engage the process of helping others without having that work change us as well. Along the way, we learn how to harvest the value of our experiences. And if we've been mindful and fortunate along the way, perhaps we have built something of value that can be passed along to someone else. A Chinese medicine practice, like everything else, goes through stages of development, maturation, and at some point, it is time to let it go. As we, the practitioner, transitions into a new phase of life. Jason Luban built a practice that supported him, and then his priorities shifted, and it was time to let go of what he'd created. Little did he know at the time that would open a path of having him help other practitioners learn to assess the value of what they'd created and help facilitate not the sale of a practice, but the transfer of that living entity to another practitioner. We know that transition and change is the slipstream in which we live. And there's a lot more that goes into understanding the value of a practice than the amount that shows up on an income tax form. Let's get into this conversation with Jason on some of the unexplored essence that goes into considering the value of a practice. Jason Luban, welcome to Geological. Thank you so much. Honor to be here among your esteemed guests. Well, here is an interesting thing in the internet world. You're in Spain. Mm-hmm. I'm in St. Louis, Spain. How'd a nice American boy like you get to Spain? <laughs> well, do you want the short version or the long version? I've got sound bites and longer versions as well. It's a freeform podcast. Uh, <laughs> jump in anywhere. Well, um, so we were living, my wife and I, in the Bay Area. I practiced for about 20 years doing Chinese medicine. And I had a, a series of losses. We had a series of losses. It seemed to stack up when they hit. And... Um, we decided to take a little break, just a vacation. You know, we'd planned one vacation a year and we'd planned it months in advance. It happened to be to Spain. And when we left the U.S., I was having all kinds of health problems. I'd forgotten how to sleep, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of embarrassing, as many of us know, to be have a full practice and then come home and not be able to figure out your own stuff. So that was my stuff. That was part of my stuff at the time. So we came to Spain and we had this long standing vacation already planned. And we drove, we did the Gringo Trail, you know, Madrid, Sevilla, Andalusia. And a lot of friends said, Oh, you got to stop in this little town called Ronda in Andalusia on your way between Sevilla and Granada. So we did. And it was just one of those magical experiences. We closed the door, closed the car, they closed the streets behind us, and we're like, didn't know what that was about got up to our room, opened the window, and a parade started across the bridge. And we just happened to be here at the perfect time. Full moon, it was my wife's birthday. All these things kind of came together. And we traveled around this little area just for a couple of days. 
And it was just magical. So we went back home and on our way back home, back to the Bay Area, my wife said, well, I'd move there if you'd sell your practice. And, uh, <laughs> and she knew that I loved my work. But uh, six weeks later, I'd sold my practice. And three months after visiting, we moved back here. And we originally had the plan to be here for a year, maybe. We'd planned all of that. But um, a couple of months after we got here, Trump got elected. So that gave us food for thought. <laughs> and a year after we got here, it went by so fast. You know, a year to an American, we take two weeks off and would think we're, you know, on a sabbatical. A year to an American is like a lifetime for a vacation. But by the end of a year, it went by so fast, we decided we'd add one more year because we barely spent any money. And after two years here, we'd forgotten that we'd ever said we would come home mm -hmm. back to the U.S. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we still try to split our time between California and here, but pretty much this is home now. Um, I have German citizenship, so I'm able to be here and she piggybacks on that, my wife. But um, it's been an amazing experience. And uh, the one thing I missed was my community, acupuncture uh, community, not just the patients, but the, the practitioners, which I love so we can get into that if you like. But Yeah, well, that's what got me started with the podcast. Yeah. I miss my community of practitioners. Mm -hmm. So I, I get where you're coming from. Yeah, so we're both fortunate that we've found ways to plug back in again. Yeah, so this is fascinating. First of all, I love your phrase, I have forgotten how to sleep. Mm -hmm. That... We often think about, oh, it's some blood deficiency or yin deficiency. We've got our ways of thinking. But just hearing that phrase, I'd forgotten how to sleep, rings true for me. Yeah. Have you had issues with sleep yourself? I have had some issues with sleep. Mm -hmm. I have. I mean, some of it's age and truly yin deficiency. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of it is having basically two full-time jobs right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? <laughs> which is okay when you're in your 20s, but in your 60s, that's like, what? Uh -huh. Doing that. And yeah, the thing about forgetting, there's just something in there. I don't know what's there, but I hear you say it. And I think, oh, I need to investigate that. Mm -hmm. Need to investigate that process of forgetting. Because sometimes forgetting is a very helpful thing. It helps you move beyond certain problems. I've watched people with acupuncture they come in for back pain, you ask them how they're doing, and they say, yeah, you know, about the same. Then you ask about their back pain, and they say, it's gone. Mm -hmm. And then I hear you talk about you have these series of losses. It makes you pause, and you end up in Spain, and synchronicity hits you like full force. Mm -hmm. And you realize, oh, there's something else here. And it can be... You know, after 20 years of practice and really loving the medicine as well as you do, it can be embarrassing to admit that you have a health problem as well that you can't figure out or that you need to leave. Do you need to stop practicing Chinese medicine? And in a sense, you know, all of us, I'm assuming of my experiences with us practitioners, that we get into this medicine and imagine ourselves in school, we imagine ourselves having a successful practice and seeing patients and living that lifestyle of a practitioner. And as I look through the podcast that you've done, the other episodes you've done with people, I don't know if you've ever done one with somebody where you're talking about what happens when you stop practicing. Yes, I have a number of those. Okay. And I've got some more coming up because 
okay, so there's retirement. Many of us, I know I imagined when I was in school, I'm not going to retire. You know, I'll just mm-hmm. be an old Chinese medicine practitioner. That's right. the way we're supposed to do it. And yet I've talked to a number of people and they said, you know what? I'm done with that part of my life. Mm-hmm. It was great. And I'm done with that. And then I hear people talk about how they launch out into a kind of a practice and they build it and it supports them and they love it. And then it morphs into something else and then it morphs into something else. And I'm increasingly thinking that retirement is not like sit back in your rocking chair, but more these moments, if we're able to recognize them, of saying, I've done a piece of work. And it's time to lay that aside mm-hmm. for the next piece of work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that a lot of times we go to school with this idea of what we're going to do with this medicine. Like you said, you never know. My life, my professional life doing Chinese medicine has morphed into four or five different directions beyond the clinical. But one thing that I see that a lot of us, when we first start out, have in common is we don't ask what happens after we're successful? What happens after you've got a full practice and you've had a full practice for 10 years? Then what? The then what question, I think, is one that we all need to ask ourselves, not just people in Chinese medicine, anybody. When you have a goal of any kind, great, I want to be famous or I want to have a full practice or I want to have, you know, whatever your want is. I would always ask now, given what I know, then what? Then what? Yes. Or what does that get for you? And if you ask the question of what does that get for you three or four times in a row like a child, you end up in this larger value space where it no longer matters whether you're practicing Chinese medicine or doing podcasts or dog walking or whatever your profession is, because the larger, the higher value is more important than the the detail of the, the means to get there. But we get caught up in the means very easily. And I don't know, I'm living proof that beyond the practice of Chinese medicine, there are so many other ways of helping. And that's ultimately what we're hoping to do. So, There's many ways of helping and there's many ways of experiencing, working with, learning what Chinese medicine actually is beyond the work that we do in clinic. Absolutely. Yeah. And maybe one of those ways, as you and I both know through our own experience now, is helping helpers. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the best way to help somebody is to get them to quit helping. <laughs> and, and that's what I do now. So uh, <laughs> you're helping people sell their practices. Yeah. Well, that's something I want to talk about with you. Mm-hmm. And one of the questions that I had when I was thinking about this conversation was people at the beginning, right? Of course, they're thinking about how can I even make this damn thing work? Right. They're not thinking okay, when it is working, and maybe I want to step away from it. Like, what's the question I want to ask? The question I want to ask is, and this may even be an inappropriate question for a new practitioner to even consider. You've got more perspective. But I'm wondering if in the very beginning of building a practice, are there things that people can do that might help them 15 years down the road when they might want to sell that practice. Absolutely. That's a great question. Yes. Number one, I would say, don't name the practice after yourself. (laughs) Don't make it Michael Max 
acupuncture or even perhaps the area, San Francisco, acupuncture, whatever, wherever you're located, to make to give it a name that's not so, ter- so terribly woo-woo, but something that's functional, something about what you do that it could be about acupuncture. It might be wellness. It might, I think mine was called Lummer and the Healing Arts was the name of my practice. And it was just accidental because I never thought beyond practicing. Accidentally, I named it something appropriate for selling. Lucky you. Yeah, very lucky. And I was able to sell it. So that's number one, is not to keep it so personal. Number two, to realize that no matter what kind of bond that you think you have with your patients, no matter how close you feel that they are, you may feel that there's no way that a lot of these patients are going to be willing to see another practitioner. You are absolutely wrong. And it's hard to realize that bigger realizations when I handed my practice over was that the people I felt would never see another person were the first to see the other person. (laughs) And there's a way we can talk through the transition and how to make that happen without much attrition. But um, it's not about you. It's about what you're able to do for people. And other people can do that too. You know, you're special in your own your own way. Everybody's a unique flower, but it's the medicine that heals as much as the interaction. And if you find the appropriate person to take over for you, your patients are going to want to see the person that can help them. It doesn't have to be you. That's right. In fact, they'd be happy not to get acupuncture if they could avoid getting acupuncture. They just want their problem to go away. Exactly. And in case in point, the, the woman who took over my practice, I used to teach courses in patient communication, nonverbal communication. And so when it came time to sell my practice, I thought, am I going to have to teach whoever takes over all of these sort of subconscious things that I've, that I've incorporated into my practice to, to communicate with my patients? I'm going to need to find somebody just like me, somebody I've trained in my methods, etc., in the end, I ended up with a, a woman, obviously a male, who Japanese was her first language. I was trained, trained in Chinese, traditional Chinese medicine, who was a naturopath in addition to being an acupuncture. Pretty much couldn't be too much more different from me and my style if I tried. And it turned out we had about 95% of my patients five years later are still seeing her. So it's not about you, like you said as well. It's about the medicine and it's about what you can do for somebody. And if somebody's got chronic headaches, whether it's sticking needles into them or doing a special dance, whatever works, uh, they're going to be happy to pursue that. Yeah. They just want their problem solved. Mm-hmm. So you'd asked a little bit earlier what you'd recommend to somebody in advance when they first start their practice. And again, number one, name it appropriately. So it's not named after you. Number two, know that you're a commodity in a sense. You are special as a practitioner. But to think about what next, to ask yourself, imagine yourself already as successful as you want to be. And then what? Do you expand? Are you going to create a huge practice? Or are you going to do it for a certain number of years and then hand it off? Give yourself a sense of holding the whole thing from start to finish and get a sense of what do you want your life to look and feel like? And keep it to that. Many of us who've been in practice for some time and have been successful come to learn that expanding and adding more people and getting a huge practice, working six days a week, seeing as many people as you can, doesn't work. You will keel over or you will just quit and be burned out. We're forgetting how to sleep. 
yeah, I'll forget how to sleep. <laughs> and so ultimately get a sense of how many days a week do you really want to work when you're totally six out. Get a sense of what you want your life to look like. And then your let your practice join you there rather than doing it the other way around and hoping that you figure it out later. Plan in advance, I guess. Yeah. Your practice join you there. That is a leap of faith. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's a real leap of faith. That is trusting that your vision and your hope can manifest. And this is a very timely conversation because I am actually at a point. I've been at a point. Let me back up. I was at a point five years ago that you were just talking about. I had a busy practice. I had three rooms, nice part of town, great little space. And I decided that I didn't want to quit doing what I was doing, but I wanted to simplify my life. Mm -hmm. And I ended up finding a house that I could work out of. And now I've got two treatment rooms, extremely low overhead, great commute. I do not see nearly as many people. Mm -hmm. I make more money. Mm -hmm. My life is much more enjoyable. And one of the things that I came away with was this thought that a busy practice is not necessarily a successful practice. You have to define for yourself, just like you were saying, you have to define for yourself, what is a successful practice? What's the right thing for me? And what's the right thing for me at any particular moment of the arc of your career? Yeah. And if you speak to people who've been at it for a long time, a lot of times they started off and built these huge practices. At least these are the people that I interact with a lot because they're selling their practices after 40 years or whatever. And in the end, they end up working two to three days a week, seeing no more than two patients in an hour, and they charge a little bit more. And like you said, they end up happier, able to sustain themselves, and they make the same amount of money. On that note as well, a lot of the people that I see in terms of selling practices will come to me and say, I have a million dollar practice and that's what I want for it. Someone told me I could get a million dollars. I'm laughing because, yeah, they may have grossed. And there are a lot of acupuncture practices, I have to say, that gross close to a million dollars a year. It's amazing. But if your expenses are high enough, the value of your practice is not a million dollars. The value of your practice is how much you have left after your expenses. That's right. Absolutely. So your uncle's friend's lawyer's cousin might tell you that it's five times your average gross is the value of practice. That's baloney. It's the value after all is said and done, after you've paid all your bills and paid yourself, how much do you have left? That's the value. And so if you make a million dollars but have to spend 700,000 to make a million, you're, you have a $300,000 practice. Or you can work a lot less, charge more, and also have a $300,000 practice without all the overhead and all the headaches. So yeah, ultimately, starting from the very beginning, get a sense of what you want your life to feel like. And then you said a little bit earlier, and trust, trust is a big thing. I actually disagree with that. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is that I believe you can actually take practical steps to join your hopeful result with uh, where you're at now. You know, if you have a sense of what you want your practice to look like, 
then you work like hell and when and then you start to see the efficiencies you just as like for instance if you're interested in buying a car and you start being interested in a certain uh subaru or something you suddenly start seeing subarus everywhere and it's the same with if you get a sense of what you want your practice to look like and feel like then as you build it you will join that you will start filtering for the opportunities to make it that way absolutely without it needing to be about faith or trust it's literally a, a process of applying yourself and seeing where you can create efficiencies to join that but if you don't have a vision of what you want you're just working into the void and exhausting yourself hello everyone andrew sturman here I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. Yes. Well, and I don't mean trust in the sense of, oh, I've got an idea, and I trust the universe will give it to me because I've got an idea. Right, right. I don't mean that at all. That's a great way to run yourself off a cliff. Right that you're going to get some great lessons from. And the lessons are going to be, or at least in my experience, the lessons are around, all right, Mr. Max, what the hell do you really want? Oh, now I'm getting clearer about what I want. Mm -hmm. Like you were just saying, now those things start showing up. They start showing up because I have a sense of where I want to go or what I want to get. And so things that I would not have seen before or things that look like obstacles now appear as opportunities. Mm -hmm. But it's only because there's that inner sense of this is what I'm looking for. Right, exactly. Now, Michael, you've been in practice for about 20 years. Is that correct? 20 plus enough that I can't remember exactly how many. Okay, so you graduated right around 2000, 2000 or, or before that. I'm trying to remember. 98. Okay, sorry to age you here. <laughs> so, <laughs> I didn't intend to. But um, I, the reason I'm asking is because I'm wondering, I'm curious, when you hit about 15, anywhere from 15 to 17 years in practice, and you were practicing, I'm assuming, that whole time. Yeah. Except, well, I had about five years in Asia. Mm -hmm. And so that was study. I practiced as I could on the people that were willing to come see me, mostly foreigners. And then I had a gig briefly in Beijing, a completely illegal job working in a Chinese clinic. Mm. That was kind of fun. Yeah. That only lasted, I don't know, a few months, half year or something like that. So I'm curious, during, for the last, in the last 10 years, has there been a point, an extended period where you felt a little burned out? Oh, yes. How far into your work were you? How many years had you been at it at that point? Well, again, I was just mentioning that I went through this phase 
roughly five-ish years ago where I moved my practice from the three-room nice little clinic in the downtown area of, of the little community I live in into a house. I wanted to simplify. So I was already hitting some burnout at that point. I would say I'm also dealing with it as we speak. Yeah. I've been looking to balance podcast and clinic. I love my clinical work. I don't think I ever want to let that go, but there may be a time where I will. But I'm very clear at this point that I would like to work a little less in the clinic and a little more on the podcast. And I rejiggered the schedule for the new year to do that, to drop back some clinic hours. Mm -hmm. Great. So do you recall how it felt to be burned out clinically? Yes. Here's what it feels like. People call me for an appointment and I think, fuck you, I want to see you. <laughs> I, no, I actually do. I mean, uh -huh. not everybody, but certain patients. Uh -huh. Let me give you an example. A woman calls to make an appointment for her husband. It's like, I don't want to see that guy. He's not going to show up. I've got way too much experience with women making appointments for their man. They don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. Now, when I'm not burned out, I can say, oh, yeah, right. Um, he'll need to call me. And sometimes, and I've done this too. This was really fun. The first time I did this, it was, it was a very ballsy move. A woman was calling to make an appointment for her boyfriend. And I said, hey, look, we both know how this is going to go. You're going to make the appointment. He's not going to show up. I don't have time for that. Mm -hmm. And she laughs and says, you're right. Okay. So when I'm not burned out, I can really engage with people. And sometimes in a slightly challenging way, I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to call the situation for what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you don't have the bandwidth for bullshit. I don't have the bandwidth for bullshit. Right. And when I'm burned out, I just get crabby. I'm just like, oh, yeah, not this again. That's the thought. Oh, God, not this again. Mm -hmm. And then how do you take care of yourself when that happens? Do you take care? Do you take a break or uh, what do you do? Well. I have cut back some on clinic hours. What I do, because I tend to be a really active person, there's two things. One, I'll try to get on my cushion and meditate a little bit more or a little more regularly if I've been off my practice. And then the other thing I do is I do something that is enjoyable to me. So I'll read or I'll write or the weather's nice. I'll get outside, spend some time with my family. Mm -hmm. Pet the cats. <laughs> I mean, whatever it is that gives me joy in the doing of it, mm -hmm. I will make room for that. Mm -hmm. I will step away from the work and I'll do something that nourishes me and fills my tank and makes me happy to be alive. And so have you had times when you've been burned out? Would you literally take a couple of weeks off or a month off or go away from the practice a little? I have done that. Um, some years ago, I checked into a Zen center for a few months. Mm, for a few months? Yeah. And then when you came back to your practice, did it feel different? <laughs> I came back. Did the practice feel different? I don't know if it felt different. What was interesting is I came back, and very quickly, I ran into a guy that told me about podcasting. Mm. And he was saying, oh, yeah, it's really great. It's a way to help build your practice, blah, blah, blah. 
And I said to him, well, that's nice, but I've got a really good website and it makes my phone ring all the time. Why would I want a podcast? And he says, oh, the people that would listen to your podcast are not the same as the people that would read your website. And I thought, wow, I wonder what this podcasting thing is about. And that I didn't need to build my practice at that point. But that idea of podcasting, something went through me when he said that. And that's when I started Everyday Acupuncture. It was mostly a way like we were talking earlier in this conversation, to connect with my community of practitioners mm -hmm. who I've been missing since I moved to St. Louis from Seattle. And I thought I could do something that would maybe help the profession. I wanted to do a podcast that talked about Chinese medicine in plain English. So maybe people would get a sense of it and maybe they would call somebody for help. Mm -hmm. That's what I wanted to do with that. So that's what happened after that sabbatical. I can't travel as much right now but I used to go back to Taiwan on a more regular basis. And that's very restorative for me. Mm -hmm. I come back and there's just more of a sense of ease when I'm in the clinic and just, you know, a sense of spaciousness. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that creates burnout for me is a lack of spaciousness. Mm, I think that's the key. And that's the thing when it starts taking up space, when it's not just time that's on your calendar, but in your head where there's not enough space for you to pet the cat <laughs> or write or read or do something that's totally unrelated in any, any profession or any hobby, the greatest creativity comes at the times where we're paying the least attention to the thing that we hope to achieve, like <laughs> in the shower, right? I mean, <laughs> you're in the shower and suddenly you realize or remember all the stuff, the points that you wish you'd used or the, you know, a creative solution to a problem that you otherwise just focusing on it doesn't help. Sometimes going peripheral with your vision, literally and metaphorically is a, a better way to approach stuff. But like you're saying, if you're, if your space is full in your head or, or literally or otherwise, it's, it's sometimes you have to literally make space in order to remember what you're doing and why you're doing it. And sometimes you, you come back to it and what you come back to isn't the same. It looks the same. Your rooms look the same. You're using the same needles and the same points, but you're, uh, the reason you're doing it is a little different. Because we're different. Right. We have that space. There's that spaciousness. You just used the word peripheral vision. And this is something that I have cottoned on to. It's funny how you can live so many years and there's something that's actually so core to who you are, but you just don't see it for the longest time. I have found that all the best stuff in my life has come from the periphery. Very rarely what I was focusing on or what I thought I should focus on. You were just talking about that. That stuff comes when we're not trying to make it happen. I was just going to say, if any of us think about any of the people that are most significant to us, our friends, our family, if you really dig down, there are infinite cofactors involved in these people existing in your life and you knowing them at all, even in your interest in Chinese medicine or any other subject that ultimately they came into your life. You missed the bus and you got on another bus because you missed your first one and you meet your wife. You go to the party that you didn't want to go to originally, and you meet the person who's been your friend for the last 20 years. All of these different things, I, it's rare that we tried to find somebody and found them or tried to figure out what we wanted to do and figured it out in a very direct way, just as you're saying. 
And so when I believe when we're lacking inspiration or we're burned out and tired, we have to create that chaos for ourselves, create the space to allow those shower moments, you know, <laughs> to, to focus on unfocusing a little bit. Now, I feel like we talked a little bit about burnout and some of us can just drop everything and leave if we have to, those of us who are lucky or, or desperate enough. But before that happens, I feel like there are a couple of other options. Or if it's already happening and you can't just leave, you've got a mortgage, you've got a lot of bills you're behind on, etc. I feel like there are two things that I wish I'd done better before I dropped everything. Number one is I wish I'd set better boundaries. And you referenced this a bit when you said you were getting burned out, that you get on the phone when people called and said, look, we both know this person is not going to show up. That's setting boundaries. To speak up when you know that this isn't going to, something's not going to work for you or a patient's not going to work for you. You've been with, seen this person a few times and you're not enjoying it. They're not enjoying it. They're not getting better. It's time to set a boundary. I think everybody knows what boundaries really are. One, setting boundaries is a way to keep yourself from burning out as fast. Number two, something I wish I'd also done is, is paid attention to the Pareto Principle. The Pareto Principle is, is named for an Italian, uh, you know about the Pareto Principle, Michael, yeah, I'm guessing. I love the Pareto Principle. I'm kind of a lazy person. And so I'm going to go for that 20% that's going to get me 80% of the effect that I'm looking for. Right. So the Pareto Principle, for those who don't know, just from that term, uh, it's the 80-20 rule. And it started with a guy named Pareto, who is an Italian economist, who figured out that 80% of the land in Italy was owned by 20% of the population. And it, we started being able to see that this 80-20 rule applied all over the place. 80% of the wear in your carpet is shows only in 20% of the total area. 80% of the sales that you have in your clinic for herbs are only 20% of your inventory, probably. 80% of the points that you use are only 20% of the points that are available, etc. So a way to apply this to your life in the clinic without, to keep you from getting burned out is cut those 20% of people out of your practice who cause 80% of your grief. I sure wish I'd done that. We all have patients where we look at the calendar, there are 15 people on the calendar, and there's one person at 4 p.m., and until we see that person, we can't relax because <laughs> we need to get through that one. Cut those people out. Send them to other people. And even if your practice isn't full, it will fill because you're setting these boundaries and following that 80-20 rule. And I sure wish I'd done that before I completely burned out. Yes. And it will fill with the right people. Correct. Yeah. Because everybody has the right people for them. That patient that I don't do well with or takes a lot of my energy is perfect for somebody else. I used to labor under the delusion that as a medical practitioner, I should be capable of and I should be open to treating anybody who seeks me out. I have learned the hard way through many encounters. That's just not true. There are some people it really is not a good fit. And like you're saying, it will contribute to burnout in a huge way. How do you know it? You look at your calendar, you know it. Right, exactly. And you get that pit in your stomach when you see that 4 p.m. person and like, ugh. Or, you know, another way to apply it is to say there are certain conditions that you know you just don't treat 
as well as you wish you could. For me, knees. I don't know why, but I suck at treating people's knees when they have knee pain or knee problems. So I wish that I'd sent more of those knee people to other people because they also take more weight sort of psychically when I see them on the calendar because I feel like, ugh, I don't know that I can help that person. But I keep seeing them to pay the bills rather than, to be bluntly honest, rather than sending them off somewhere else and filling, like you said, Michael, filling your practice with what you enjoy, what you feel good at. I do screen people these days, small one-man practice. And yes, when people call and they ask me if I can make them lose weight or make them stop smoking, the answer is just no. You can do it. You can put these needles in my ear, right? That was one of my favorite questions. What's the needle for weight loss? Right. I always say that it goes right between your lips. (laughs) (laughs) But... And it's different for everybody. There are people that are great with knees. There Uh probably are people that are good at helping people with weight loss. I am not one of them. Who are your people? Do you have a a sense of who your people are? Uh, That's a good question. And I should be able to have a very quick elevator pitch-like answer for you. I'm going to tell you who mine are while you think about it. I love the people who are hopeless, who don't believe in Chinese medicine. (laughs) And the reason I do... Two reasons. I mean, number one is I used to, when I first started out, run around to MDs and DOs and PT offices and hand out my cards and watch them throw them in the trash. And then uh, ultimately, I found that if I told them, I will see the people that you don't like seeing. I'll see the people who you've tried everything else with. You go to an orthopedic surgeon or a PT office and say, I'll see the pain people who you've tried everything with and they're still in pain. Because they want to get rid of those people and they want to be able to give them an option. So they'll send them to me. I love seeing those people because they're hopeless. And so they'll say, I don't believe in Chinese medicine. So the worst thing that can happen is you meet their expectations. Yes. The worst thing that can happen is you didn't help them. But if you help them even 10%, 5%, that's 5% more than they expected to be helped. So those ended up being my people. I love those people. Uh, because I didn't have to convince them that anything worked. They weren't going to believe me anyway. I have a similar thing. I enjoy the people who are a bit skeptical. Mm. And they're skeptical for good reason, because they're Americans. They didn't grow up with this. Frankly, it's a little bit weird. How are they supposed to understand it? They're not supposed to understand it. But you know, if they're willing to give it a whirl and see if it might be useful, I'm very happy to see them. Now, the people that I have a lot of trouble with, and I know it's never going to work, and if I can avoid them coming in my office in the first place, I I will do that, are the people who say, I believe in acupuncture. This is going to help me. And I say, great. You've used it before. It's been useful. And they say, no, I've never had it in my life. The ones who come in with a belief that it's going to help them, I actually don't want to see them. Oh, yeah. I've never had a good result always been bad. In terms of who my patients are, I would say it's a wide range of issues, but the thing that ties them together is that they're open-minded, they take some responsibility for their own life, and they're willing to give it a few treatments and see what happens. And they tend to be honest. So the folks that are that will come in and go, yeah, nothing has changed whatsoever. I really love working with those folks. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you're having to dig out 
you know, whenever you get that, well, it might be a little better kind of thing. It, it either means nothing has changed or it means everything has changed and they already forgot about it. Mm-hmm. And those people are no fun for us. And I have to say, selfishly speaking, I want to have fun <laughs> as a practitioner. You know, it's no fun to me if somebody's like, no, I paid you a hundred bucks and I think I'm a little better. I'm like, eh, maybe, maybe not. It could be the fact that I was also taking pain meds or whatever. That's yeah. no fun. You just said something and it just rang a bell for me. And this is true. I want it to be fun. And I would say that the people that I see that are my patients, they may have serious issues going on. They bring in their serious issue, but they also bring in the rest of it. And they bring in all of them. So sometimes we laugh in the midst of difficulties. Sometimes there's tears in the midst of difficulties. Those people who bring their whole selves into the process, I find it a deeply nourishing experience. Mm -hmm. And of course, as a practitioner, it's not about me. I'm not there just for my own fun. And at the same time, I have to be working in a way that sustains me and a sense of enjoyment and a sense of, I'm going to say surprise that shows up in the treatment room is very important. And I think it's really helpful for patients when they reframe their experience. Certain things are never going to go away, but sometimes the story that they tell themselves about it will change. And I think that can be very powerful. I'm not saying we should talk people out of their problems. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there can be a transformative moment where people change their story. Mm -hmm. And all kinds of other things start to happen. It's not so unlike what you said a little earlier in the conversation that us as practitioners, if we have a sense of where we're going and what we want, we're more likely to see the opportunities that will allow us to get there. Mm -hmm. You'll filter for them, yeah. And sometimes people change their filters in an acupuncture treatment. Mm -hmm. And amazing things can happen. Mm -hmm. And by the end, fortunately in the work I do now, I get to speak with a lot of really senior practitioners, not just in Chinese medicine. I mean, now, you know, selling practices, we've dealt with almost 300 practices now since 2016, 17. And now uh, at least half of those are not Chinese medicine. They're MDs, DOs, PTs, DCs, et cetera. And so a lot of times these aren't all old people who are in practice for 40 or 50 years. Sometimes they have a death in the family or health concern of their own, or they're going to move to a new area and they could have been in practice for three or four or five years. But one of the things that I've found consistently across modalities with people who've been in practice for 30 or 40 years is the medicine, the technique, the procedure, whether it's acupuncture or surgery or, or PT or whatever, is less significant than the connection with the patient. And they all know this. And it sounds corny to say it, but it, you know, with acupuncture, in a sense, the way that I've heard it said most sort of eloquently was, uh, was that the, the procedure is shamanic. Shamanic in the sense where the person who said this to me was a, a teacher who literally studied with shaman in Peru and would hang out for two days while they were beating the drums and had this person in the middle of the circle who were all trying to heal, doing all of this different stuff, maybe even taking drugs, who knows what, not drugs, herbs, mm -hmm. um, 
beating on their drums, going all night for two nights. And then in the end, you know, perhaps the person was healed after two days. And my teacher asked the shaman, at what point in the ceremony did the healing happen? And the shaman would say, it happened before the ceremony started when I set my intention. The rest of it was just a dance to entertain the mind, the conscious mind of the patient while the intention did the work. And in some senses, I feel like what we do with acupuncture, yes, you know, we can look at the physiology behind it and try to do double blinds, which obviously don't work with our medicine, or all different ways of trying to prove it scientifically. But ultimately, we're connecting human to human and setting an intention to connect with a patient does as much or more as you talk to these senior practitioners of all different stripes as the actual medicine itself, that the connection means everything. And so again, coming back to burnout, mm -hmm. if you're burned out, you're not connecting with people. Because if you are, you're not going to burn out. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. Well, the capacity is lowered if you're burned out. Yeah. So this is interesting. We started this conversation, and, and we're going to circle back to this because I do want to talk more about buying and selling businesses. Mm -hmm. But here we are already a ways into this conversation, and, and what we've been talking about is how we are and who we are in the work that we do. So with that in mind, how does all that come into buying and selling a practice? And, and why would you want to buy someone's practice? That might be a good place to start. As a buyer, why would you want to buy someone's practice? Yeah, why would you buy someone else's thing? So one thing I, I've learned through the process of doing this, and I came to this by accident, which perhaps we can talk about. I certainly never intended to help people buy and sell practices. It just kind of happened. But 95% of the time when we sell a practice, it's sold to somebody who, who tells us, I wasn't looking to buy a practice, but then I saw the opportunity and went, why am I working so hard? And that is the reason. Most of the practices that are purchased aren't bought by people who are fresh out of school. They're bought by people who have been trying to do it on their own for anywhere from one or three to 10 years, and they're just not getting traction. It just feels like they're working their asses off and they're just not getting it. It seems like everybody else is succeeding and they're not. 
So when you market a practice for sale, you really should be thinking, who is that person out there who's been working at it already, who just wants to step in and, and just succeed from day one rather than keep trying, trying, trying and not getting anywhere. These are the people who buy. That's the reason to buy for the most part. Uh, you could start from scratch and try buying, but usually it's good to have a little bit of clinical experience and to try on your own so you can see the difference between what you've been doing unsuccessfully and what this other person has been doing for decades with a full practice. And they'll teach you because that's part of the process of buying. Um, and you'll inherit their patients. And those patients, this is a big misconception with purchasing a practice. If you go on Facebook and such and say, I'm considering buying a practice, you'll hear a bunch of noise about, oh, don't do that because none of the patients will follow you. That's absolute baloney. They will follow you as long as you listen to the person you're taking over from. And the key wording is that that practitioner has to say, this is the person I've chosen to take over for me, not this is the person who's buying my practice. And that language makes all the difference because the patient wants continuity. They don't need you. They need somebody like you who is going to continue caring for them in a similar way. So as long as the handoff is smooth, and we can talk, oh, that's a whole other podcast. But the key is try to be as similar as possible in your manner, in your way, in the beginning with those patients as the as your predecessor was. And that person will teach you that's part of, within a couple of weeks with somebody, you'll get enough of a sense of them to be able to emulate their success and keep those patients. How much of it is that practitioner has a, a good way with patients, able to treat them, able to retain them, or just bring in new ones? Because, of course, if you're a good practitioner, you're sending people out all the time. How much of it is the practitioner? And how much of it is that you've built processes into the business itself so that the business is solid. You've got procedures. You Something comes up, you know how it's going to be done. Mm -hmm. right? You've got your accounting in order. You've got your front desk in order. Years ago, I remember reading a book, um, oh, not good to great. That was a different one. Um, it's the one about like basically building a, I can't even remember the name of it right now. Is it the E-Myth? Yes. Yeah. E-Myth, where you basically are building the bones of a business mm -hmm. so that it can be replicated. Exactly. And earlier on, you asked, what do you do? What are some things you'd recommend as somebody who's just getting started? That's right. That's a good book to read. And of course, it's not, it talks more about being able to franchise or being able to imagine your business expanding creating processes where you take yourself out of it so that anyone could read the manual and sort of learn enough to continue that process. And I think in certain kinds of businesses and software and where the person is less significant than the product, then that's true. But I don't know that it's as true in medicine because there is a certain attachment to the practitioner. If anybody helps you, if you go to a therapist, if somebody says or does something to help you, you immediately get attached to that person to some degree. And it's hard to not mix up the medium and the message. So to your question, how much of it is procedures and how much of it is the person, I really think it's two-thirds the person. It's hard to give an exact measurement, but something like that. I think it is more the person, but the things that that person does don't have to be unique to that person. It's easy to learn how to be like that person for those patients if you're taking over a practice. Um, 
It's not that hard. Uh, and most of it comes down to some basics to human stuff about listening and mirroring and matching. And that's, of course, if you want to Google mirroring and matching, that was what I used and what I recommend to people, this technique based in neuro linguistics to get rapport, instant rapport with people. And uh, that's one way to do it. Yeah. I don't know if I've answered your question, but I think the answer is that I don't know the answer. <laughs> I don't know how much is procedure. What I'm hearing is the answer is it depends. But it's mostly the personal, yeah. Some of it is the practitioner, and you want to learn to be kind of like them, at least in the beginning, because mm -hmm. it makes for a smooth transition. Um, I've got a friend who, she's been acupuncture for a long time, longer than me. And lately, I know she's been really working on her business. I mean, she already has a successful business, but she's taking it to another level of making sure that there's procedures and there's ways of doing things. So anybody could, like a front desk person could step in mm -hmm. and it's like, well, this is what the job is. It's not just like, okay, you're at the front desk and, you know, schedule people and take their money and be nice. That's not a recipe for success. What's a recipe for success is here's how this job functions. Here's the things that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed in my own business, it works better when I've got certain things dialed in. So I just don't have to think about them. They're just part of the habit of working in clinic. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what I'm getting at with, you might be a great practitioner with a, a chaotic process of running your business. Right. And that's going to put some brakes on it. Right. And the business that I sold when I sold my practice was that. Um, I took over for a guy. I bought his practice years and years earlier uh, who was a great practitioner. And that's the thing is you can have a full practice if people love you and you do a good job, but be absolutely chaotic in the office. And when I took over, it turned out that each person he saw, he charged a different fee each time he saw them, depending on how he felt. <laughs> and so one of the first things I had to do is say, okay, everybody's going to pay whatever, 65 bucks or whatever it was back then. And people were like, but wait, he wouldn't have ever done that. And like, well, yeah, but I have to create some processes here. Otherwise, boundaries, that was the boundary situation. And I lost some patients, but they were the patients who were $25 each time, you know, is a challenge. And that can be a real challenge taking over for somebody. And of course, if you ultimately want to sell your business, you got to put some procedures in place so that, so that it's consistent between patients, how you treat them, what the process is, et cetera, exactly what you're saying. Most of us are decent at that. But yeah, my experience was exactly the opposite when I took over. Uh, but I'll tell you, going back to the mirroring and matching thing, the guy I took over for, I was really concerned that I was he, everybody's going to leave because all of his patients loved and had been with him for decades, and uh, a lot of them had. And so I got to the point where I imitated his posture, his breathing. I even imitated the way that he, the look on his face when he put needles in. He had this way of, he had a little half smile when he talked to people. And I started doing that as well, consciously on my part. Nobody noticed it, but... Perhaps it was that, perhaps it was something else, but a lot of patients months after I took over said, you seem so much just like him, um, which was great because then at that point I could start being myself. This is really interesting. If I'm hearing this correctly, an important piece of having a successful transition 
is kind of morphing into the other person for a period of time. You want to do anything you can to get the patients to be comfortable with you. Mm. And so if you have a high squeaky voice and the other practitioner has a low voice, if you talk fast, they talk low. These are, I'm getting into the weeds here a little bit, but the unconscious, most, most of us have heard the statistic that 90% of the communication is nonverbal. And so, you know, we can try to say the right things, but really posture, speed of speech, volume, very basic things are enough to get instant rapport or to mirror and match the other person. Again, if you Google mirroring and matching, you'll learn a lot of this stuff. It's free online, but it makes a huge difference. In fact, just, you know, I used to teach patient communication. So this is something we would teach as well, just dealing with your patients that with a new patient, especially somebody who doesn't trust you or doesn't believe in the medicine, et cetera, these mirroring and matching techniques go a long way to getting instant rapport so that the person trusts you. And ultimately, all relationships are just about trust. So whether it's in transition or with your patients directly, um, yeah, I could go, I could speak for an hour just on that, of course. So, Well, and maybe something for another conversation. Yeah, yeah. Those patients, I'm just thinking about those patients where you look at them on the calendar and you go, oh, all right, I got to get through that. Mm-hmm. What would you say about bringing mirroring and matching to that? Is that helpful or or would it take you in the other direction? Is that, or, or is it just that sometimes people are not a good fit and the best thing is, is just to say goodbye? I, I'd go for the latter after many years. I believe that we all try as practitioners. I have this belief that hopefully is true, that, that we're all trying with somebody, with each person we see. And sometimes there's just not a vibe there. There's just not a match. Just like you said, I believe that there are patients that are the right patients for us. And there are some that just aren't and somebody else is better for them. And, uh, you know, when you get that pit in your stomach after enough time, after a few treatments with somebody that's just not happening, send them off and enjoy your life. Well, we talk a lot about trusting our gut and we talk a lot about connection in our medicine and, uh, if it's not there, it's just not there. You could bang your head against it, right? It's like one of those relationships where, well, we could try to make this work, but... Why? <laughs> yeah. Why waste your time when there are a lot of other people out there that you might more enjoy uh, experiencing? So ultimately, I say I burned out, but I still love the medicine. And, and most of the people that I've talked to who have burned out still love the medicine itself. Just the, the practice of it eventually, you know, can be exhausting. And I was fortunate enough that I sold my practice within six weeks. I did it by myself and I didn't know that was unusual. And that's how I kind of accidentally ended up helping other people because uh, people started saying, oh, I heard about this guy who sold his practice by himself. And so I started ask, answering questions online and you know, on Facebook groups and such. And the answers got longer and longer. So I just created a website, sellingapractice.com to put all those answers up there. And that became blog entries. And people started asking if I do it for them. Fortunately, I'm also married to an attorney. So <laughs> she, when I sold my practice, was able to help. But now she and other people have taught me the ropes. And after doing a couple hundred of these now, it, there is a process to it. But it doesn't have to be trying. And for me... What I was missing when I took a break from Chinese medicine wasn't just the patients. It was what you were saying earlier. It was getting to connect with other practitioners, being part of that community. So many of us are like 
snow leopards, you know, we have our own little practice by ourselves. We're not in a group of people. We're the only people there. And I don't know about you, but when I went to conferences, the Pacific Symposium and all of those, yeah, the classes were great, but I was really there ultimately because I loved being around my colleagues. It was so great to be at a snow leopard convention. <laughs> and so, um, so for me, what I love about getting to help people sell their practices is just like, great, they get to sell the practice, but we get to have this interaction where we're practitioners interacting and having similar goals. So I guess the point of bringing all this up is that there are so many ways to experience the medicine. It's not just sticking needles in people. You There is also the, the interaction with your colleagues. There's software that does stuff for Chinese medicine or medicine in general. There's, there's the communication aspect as we've touched upon. There's so many different aspects, and each one of these is its own silo of, of experience and, and fun. Um, and it's ultimately all these different ways of connecting to people, to colleagues and to patients. And um, at this point, I guess I'm more excited about that experience of connecting than being specific about the doctor-patient relationship. Well, I think a lot of us are drawn to the work because we'd like to see a little more harmony in the world and a little less suffering. Mm -hmm. We can certainly do that with the medicine that we've learned. We can also do that like you're doing right now, facilitating people changing their businesses or buying a business. We're happy to let somebody else take over their business. Um, you know, I use the podcast to some degree in service of that, creating connections mm -hmm. beyond the, the needles. There's that. I'm really struck, and, and I appreciate this conversation in, in this time today, Jason. The thing you bring up about burnout and how both are a crisis mm -hmm. and an opportunity, just like the Chinese character is Wei Qi, right? It's an opportunity and it's a crisis at the same time, and something worth entertaining, something worth investigating. Maybe it's just a catalyst for the next thing that would like to unfold. You had no idea that you were going to help people sell their practices from Spain. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's, if there's any consistent thread that runs through my career in Chinese medicine, in and around Chinese medicine, it's the lack of consistency in how these things came about. My background, I mean, I was, I had a disability that made it so that it was hard for me to handwrite my notes. So while I was in class, I had a laptop before people did that a lot and created a database to keep all of my notes. And that became a company when I graduated called uh, Trigram Software made a program called Accubase that was the first program out there for running your office, Chinese medicine. That was you? That was me. I created that program. And I sold the, the company back in 2009. So it's not mine anymore. So if you don't like it, it's not my fault anymore. <laughs> but that I never intended to start a software company or to sell one for that matter. That happened out of my need to have a, a way of compensating for my own issue. And then what I noticed, something that you brought up at the very beginning of our conversation today, that we're Westerners using Chinese medicine. And a lot of times my experience, in, as you've had a lot of experience in China, my experience with Chinese practitioners and going to a Chinese school myself is that a lot of the Chinese way of practicing is you stick the needle in and walk away. You don't talk to the patients a lot, but our patients in the U.S. need a lot of, they need to know what's going on, what you're doing, why you're doing it, how they're going to feel. A lot more psychology in, in America 
patients. And so with that, I thought, well, it would probably be good to learn some communication techniques, which is how I learned neurolinguistic stuff and hypnosis and all these different ways of speaking to enhance the the progress of the patient. That became its own business called Practice Report. I never intended to do. I got rid of that a couple years ago when I burned out. The same with this thing. You know, I sold my own practice. It became a business when people needed help doing the same. So you never know where this stuff's going to go, but it can all be these different ways of experiencing the medicine without, just like you said, you never know where it's going to come from. Well, I do know where it's going to come from. It's going to come from the periphery. That's what I know. Right. And paying attention to your own needs, because whatever your needs are, it's quite likely that there's a whole population out there of people who have the same needs that you can help them with. That's great. I used to work in high tech and would talk about creating systems and things that it was just our attempt to scratch our own itch. Mm-hmm. We need X, Y, Z. And it sounds like you've done that with your life. I think a lot of us that are self-employed have a long history of doing that because if you're making your own job, if you're making your own business, it has to be something that really touches deeply. Maybe because you're solving your own problem. Exactly. And every business is based in solving a problem of any kind. So the most popular businesses are the best at solving the problems that they've initially decided to tackle. So Absolutely. And, and when it comes to advertising, what you want to advertise is the pain that people are feeling, and then you want to push it and make sure they feel it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's our job to get rid of pain, right? So... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I so appreciate our conversation today. And uh, you're giving me a lot to think about in terms of looking at the challenges that I have right now. We all have challenges in front of us. I don't think that ever stops. That's part of being human. But that reframe of looking at the challenges, looking at the burnout, looking at what is difficult and taking that as, say, grist for the mill and figuring out the most important 20%. Mm -hmm. That seems like reliable advice. Yeah. So I thank you for that. Set boundaries and and be willing to um, focus on the 20% that gives you 80% of your joy. Thank you. And set boundaries. Yeah. Which is tough, but it's so worth it. And that's what I wish I'd paid more attention to. All right. Well, maybe we'll come back for another conversation about that kind of thing because boundaries, yeah, that's important stuff. Yeah, Jason, anything else that you would like to say to our listeners before we wind this down for today? Well, one thing I'd say is that you're never alone. So in our practices, especially doing what we do, so many of us practice by ourselves. And though we're not alone, literally, because we have our patients there, we are by ourselves practicing this medicine and we have colleagues we can reach out to but a lot of times you can feel very alone in your practice it's just you doing this and who else can you reach out to and to just know that we're all in that situation together which means that you're never alone and so if anybody needs to reach out for any reason there are resources on facebook there are all kinds of great groups out there you are putting together michael this you know these podcasts and all of this to allow us to have this community as well And I might be in Spain, but we can just as easily chat like this, that 
just know that a lot of the problems that you're having, if you are challenged in any way in your practice, is because you think you're the one who had to do it all by yourself and you don't. There's a huge community of us out there and we all want to talk. So get on Facebook, send Michael an email, whatever, me an email. And um, I think most everybody I've ever met in this community loves to talk. And in that community, I think you find a lot of healing. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you so much, Jason. This has been a real pleasure. Thank you. I so appreciate the opportunity to get to chat with you and to be listened to. The R word, retirement, is something we usually consider to be an event in the distant future and of little relevance to us as we are actively engaged in our work. But if you look at your work, you'll see that retirement is something we all engage in all the time. Perhaps you've retired from a previous career to become an oriental medicine practitioner. I know that I've had clinic models that served me at one point, but were not the right fit for moving into the future that I wanted to inhabit. And so I retired those ways of working. Our medicine reminds us that the autumn season is one of both harvest and withering away. We take in the efforts of our work and labors, which in turn helps to sustain us, and we let go of what no longer is of service. Recognizing where we are, what brings us vitality, and what might need to be released, it's an ongoing process. Letting go of something does not mean we stop doing. It means we stop doing that and open ourselves to the opportunity to inhabit new challenges. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm-hmm.